0: You are listening to Haftorah, the Sheer series which explores the connections between the Parsha Shavua and its corresponding Haftarah. And here at the Database with Rabbi Ishmael Eisenberg, this week's Parsha is Parsha Smishpatin. And as we had mentioned earlier this week in our brand new series, Who Knows?, where we spoke about 10 of these special Shabbasas that we find throughout the year, as well as the special Haftaras that accompany them. So we'd spoken about the fact that this week with Parsha Mishpatim, we will also be beginning the series known as the Dalad Parshios or the Arba Parshios, which begin with Parshas Shkalim, And with that in mind, there are actually two potential Haftaras that can be read on Parshas Mishpatim. And those are the actual Haftara for Parshas Mishpatim, which is very rarely read. And then there is the Haftara for Parshas Shkalim. So for that reason, this week, our Haftara series will actually have two editions one for the actual Haftarah for Parshas Mishpatim, and one for Parshas Shkalim, which will come later this week as well, Be'ez Ras Hashem. And of course, we dedicate the Shir Lili Nishmasi Mimerasi Chaya Bas Harinika Paras Mishkava Har Nisham an Aliyah. And as we look at the actual Haftarah for Parshas Mishpatim, it comes from Sefer yermia and it's one of those interesting Haftarahs where, besides for the rareness of the occurrence of this Haftarah, there is something rare that takes place in the Haftarah, and that is that the Haftarah um, features Psukim that are read out of order. Because the beginning of the Haftarah is Parak Lamidalad and goes from Pasuk Ches to Chafbez. So that's 34, 8 to 22. And then the Haftarah closes with, the, with two Pesukim in the previous parak, Lamid Gimel 33, and those are the Chav Chafhe and Chavov, 25 and 26. One of the reasons for this is that we have a principle in our that we only end on a positive note. So if there is a Haftarah that looks like it's taking a um, a downward spiral or it's ending off on some bitter note, we always try to flip it towards the end to make sure that we're reading something positive at, at, the, at the conclusion. We find this also with um, various Megillos as well. So for example, the um, the, uh, the, um, for Megillus Eicha, which, um, the aval- the final pasuk is, um, is a negative sounding pasuk. So we end with the penultimate pasuk or the second to last pasuk. We find the same thing with Megillus Kohalas, where the penultimate pasuk is a nice sounding pasuk and the final pasuk sounds quite bitter again. And there's even a, another haftarah of that nature. I believe it's the haftarah for Rosh Chodesh. Well, when Rosh Chodesh falls out on Shabbos, um, I could be wrong about that. But um, there, there is a at the very end of Sefer Yishayahu, I believe, that has a similar kind of a twist. Um, you can always correct me at the database at gmail.com if I'm being imprecise. Um, it's the base B-E-I-S, at gmail.com. And of course, same place to reach out to me if you want to partner up with us and give a sponsorship, or if you have questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, or you want to join the Database Podcast WhatsApp group for links for every uploaded share, for updates, for schedules um, about some Shirem coming on the podcast, or if you want to just see Shirem that are quote-unquote being streamed from the archives, reruns for various partios. So usually those are posted every week, so you could join the database podcast WhatsApp group by reaching out to me at the database at gmail.com. The data base, B E I S at gmail.com. But let's talk about our Haftarah. So, so the, um, we mentioned um, the fact that the Psukkim are a little bit out of order for the reason of ending on a positive note. Fine. But now, before we actually discuss in depth the Haftarah for Pashas I'll mention again that it's interesting to note. That's similarly to that of another Parsha that we had in our archives in Haftarah. Um, and that is for Parsha's Mikates. Um, just like we find by Parsha's Mikates, the actual Haftarah of Parsha's Mishpatim, which we're about to discuss, is rarely read. It might be read more often than that of Parsha's Mikates. The Haftarah for Parsha's Mikates um, we read a couple of years ago. And it was so exciting when we did that that I, I devoted a whole shear to it on the Real Talk Torah series, so I didn't have to devote a shear to it in the half Torah series. But what I did do, if you recall, was for Partius Miketz when it was Shabbos Hanukkah, as we find by most years. And I think the last time that we um, read the actual Lav Torah for Miketz, besides for two years ago, I think was 20 years ago before that. Um, um, but um, what I did do is when I recorded the half Torah shear, for for Shabbos Hanukkah, which is again when Miketz usually falls out, so I included the link to that shir that we had in the archives. Um, but now we're taking a look at the Haftarah for Mishpatim, and again, Mishpatim is rarely read, and that's because in the regular calendar year, Mishpatim will always coincide with Parsha Shkalim. The only scenario where we don't um, have Mishpatim coinciding with Shkalim is during a leap year. And the problem is that even during the leap years, what often happens is that the week of Mishpatim will coincide with either Rosh Chodesh or Arab Rosh Chodesh Adar, um, each of which will have its own respective Haftarah, whether it's the Haftarah for Rosh Chodesh or the Haftarah for Machar Chodesh. And so because of that, even on a leap year, it's rare that we read the actual Haftarah for Parshish Mishpatim. But... Be that as it may, as we did in the past, grace, parsha, Miketz, we're also going to direct our attention to the unique haftarah of Mishpatim um, for the times that it is read. You could always come back to this year and listen to that. So, with that introduction, so what does the actual haftarah for Mishpatim talk about? And how is it relevant to the contents of our Sidra? All right? We can't forget about the parsha, right? So, the obvious connection between Mishpatim and this haftarah from Yermia from Prakim, Lama Dalad, and Lamed Gimel, in that order, is that each reading, our Parsha and the haftarah, each one features the concept of the Eved Evri, the Hebrew slave or the Hebrew bondman. Uh, the, and we find this in Parsha and the Torah teaches us the many laws and the many ordinances of the Torah, and it begins that conversation with the laws pertaining to Eved Evri, I mean, we know that inevitably he's someone who he's either sold as a slave by Bazdin because of a punishment um, because he's unable to repay something that he had stolen and so in order to make restitution he becomes a slave the other possibility is that he sells himself fine now in the haftaro what does the navi tell us about um Avedivri? so the navi records how tzedekia melechi had enforced a decree that would um that that required everyone to free they're Hebrew bondmen and bondwomen, any any slaves that they owned. However, after a short time, the Aftarah tells us that people would backpedal and then proceed to subjugate their brethren all over again, and and, and, and maintaining their slaves. Thus, Yermia would come along to rebuke the people, paraphrasing verses from our very own Sidra quoting our Sidra almost verbatim, telling them that they violated the Torah by refusing to free their slaves. So Yermia then warns the B'nai Israel that since they did not free their slaves, Hashem will leave them free. Since I mean, He'll leave them deror, is the word that's used, a, a word that we find in Parsha's Bahar when it talks about yobel, the which uh, signifies the freedom of the slaves. So he says, because you didn't free your slaves, Hashem is going to leave you free for the sword, the pestilence, and the famine, to overtake them. And the presentation of this warning is particularly strange if you think about it, because if one thinks about it, a more appropriate mida konegad mida, or a measure-for-measure response to the people who subjugated their brethren, would be that people, the same people would in turn be subjugated. They would be bound or enslaved by their exile. Instead, the Navi does not say that because you didn't free others but you subjugated them, so it doesn't say that you're going to be subjugated, but it almost says, like, really the opposite. It says, since you didn't free others, you yourselves would be free. Yes, free, but free to be punished and free to all bad things. But the wordplay, as interesting as it is, is not exactly a perfect measure-for-measure measure response. So the question is, why does the Novi sort of abandon the measure-for-measure for measure format and instead emphasize the freedom of... That Klaistra would be granted, the Darur, that they would be granted to the forces, the negative forces of the world, the pestilence, the sword, and the famine. So keep that question on the side for now. Another noteworthy feature of this Haftarah, which could be found in Urmia's Rebuke of the People, is the apparent covenant which the people entered when they freed their slaves. The Navi goes on to describe how the people had to split a calf into two parts, and they would pass in between the parts. A ritual that should be familiar to us, right? Well, why does this sound familiar? I'm cutting up a calf in two and walking between it? Very good. It sounds just like Avraham Avinu's Brisbane of Asarim, right? The Covenant Between the Parts, literally, which he made with Hashem generations earlier, back in Sefer Brashe's, Parshat Lecha, Tezvav. Apparently, the people had not only violated the Torah, but they violated their own later day covenant between the parts, their own Brisbane of The question, though, is what connection the B'nai Israel's temporary freeing of their slaves had to the original Brisbane of Asarim? Why does the Navi evoke this image in the context of Avodivri? And we know that the story of the Brisbane of is definitely not a Parshish Meshpatim connection. Um, it sounds more like a connection to Parsha's Lechachah. Though, if we think about it, there is a bris also that takes place in Parsha's Mishpatim. It's the bris of Kleistral entering the relationship with Hashem and accepting the Torah. At the very end of the Parsha, we do find karbonos that are offered, and Hashem is machnas the Bnei Stral into his bris of Torah. So maybe there's something to be said about that. But is there anything more? So as far as the connection between the Haftara and our Sidra goes, there's definitely no real wonder as to the appropriateness of the connection, right? The connection is, is, is immediate. Perhaps one of, one could argue that there are many laws that are taught in Parshish and Mishpatim besides Revit Ivri, but even so, it's very clear that the laws of Revit are an integral part of Sidra, as the Torah decided to begin the Mishpatim with these laws of Avedivri, and discuss them in particular depth, while many of the other laws are only given passing and references. So if that's true, the only real question on this issue is why that is. Why was it so crucial about, you know, the, the, the laws and the concept of that the Torah gave it such a particular attention and emphasis, placing it at the beginning of all of these societal laws of Mishpatim? If you think about it, it's not necessarily the most inspiring of the mishpatim. There are many great mishpatim, right? So you know, like helping helping an animal up you know, when your friend is trying to to um, to pack up his animal, right? You help his friend. You help your friend. Azov tazovimo. There's so many. the, the, the Shabbos. The, the, there's so many mitzvot in Parshas Mishpatim. So why is every centralized like that? So. Before we can answer these questions, we have to consider one final issue. And that is the title of this slave. We keep on saying it. We all know he's called the Eved Ivri, which literally translates to the Hebrew slave. The question is, why did the Torah choose the name Ivri, the Hebrew? Even at the point of Parshish Meshpatan, the Jews were also called Yisraelim. So why not call him Eved Yisrael or Eved Yisraeli? Would that not have been any less accurate? However, there is apparently something really integral about the term Ivry. And if you think about it, who was the first person to be called an Ivry? And that was Avram Avinu, back in Parsha's Lach HaPerach adala just before the Brisbane of Asarim. Why was he called Ivry? Because he lived the Averanar Anar, on the other side of the Euphrates River. Right, He was on the other side. And of course, Chazal teaches that the term ivri has further implications of otherness, that Hashem was spiritually and ideologically on the other side of the world against all of the pagans and whatnot. Now, what does any of the above have to do with the evid ivri? So, if you think about it, aside from Avram Avinu, at least in the Torah, there were others that were also referred to as ivri. And I'm thinking of both Yosef HaTzadik and really the Bnei Israel as a nation, they were also referred to uh, with the title Ivri. We find Yosef was called an Ivri back in Parshas Vayeshev, Parak Right, He was called an Ivri when he was in the home of Potiphar. Yishas Potiphar says, you brought this Ivri in here to cause trouble. And Klai Yisrael is called Ivri in the first Parak of Shemos. It does come up. However, Yosef and the Bnei Israel they share another title in common with Evid Ivri. In that they were also Avadim when they were in Egypt. Right? Yosef was in Ivry and he was in Ever. What about Clausral? Avadim Hayinu, Leparabim Mitzrayim, right? So Clausral were also Avadim. So Yosef and Bnei Israel, they were both classifiable as Evid Ivry. Of course, not only were Yosef and the B'nai Israel enslaved with physical bondage, but they were subject to the state of otherness, not just socially, but spiritually and ideologically. Like Avram Avinu, in their bondage, they were on the other side of the world to that of the spiritually void Egyptians, and it was that otherness that gave them Hashem's special attention. Indeed, the sense of spiritual and ideological otherness, which made Avraham the forerunner of the Bnei Israel, Hashem's chosen nation, and Not only did it make Avraham the forerunner of the Bnei Israel, but it also served as the Bnei Israel's ticket out of bondage. If you think about it, it was Klai Israel's ability to tap into their inner Avraham by defying the Egyptian pagan deities and acknowledging Hashem as the only god that the Bnei Israel merited to leave their Egyptian masters to serve Hashem alone. They took the Egyptian god, they slaughtered it, and they showed that they were on the other side with Avraham. Now, all of the above is the backdrop, I believe, for the ebed whose spiritual goal is to eventually leave his bondage to serve Hashem alone. And we know that when the Yovel year arrives, as the Torah teaches, there will be a proclamation of deror, mandatory freedom for all slaves, at which point nobody will be bound by labor to another human. Everyone will just have one master in heaven. There will be no dual loyalties. However... Let's consider for a second, within the Haftorah, who is the audience of the rebuke that Yirmiyahu issues? Because this message that we've been communicating now about the importance of freedom of slaves in the context of not just freedom from, but the freedom to, the freedom to serve Hashem with our undivided attention. So this message is undoubtedly important for the Ebed Ivri, who might be missing the whole point of the entire exodus if he chooses to forego his destiny of serving Hashem alone for the opportunity instead to be a slave to man. Right? We know what, what the Torah tells us. If the he ever chooses to, to stay, he says, Adoni, And then what do we do? We pierce his ear because the ear that heard that he's supposed to be a slave only to Hashem, a servant to Hashem, and he went against that, and he decided to become a, a slave to humankind, or maybe the one that heard not to steal, and he stole, etc. The point is, the Torah sends a message to the Eved himself. But think about the contrast in our Haftarah. Because if we compare the message that the Torah issues to the Ebed Ivri, to our Haftarah, we'll notice that our Haftarah is speaking to a different audience. Because our Haftarah reveals that this message of allowing the slave to serve just Hashem, so that's equally important to not just the slave himself who has to realize it, but to the stubborn masters who might not be willing to relinquish their servants. They have to realize that since there is only one God who is worthy to serve, and that they are not God, then that doesn't, you know, that that doesn't just go for them as individuals, but that goes for their own slaves. You know, the people of Yermia's time, they needed to make their own version of the Brisbane of symbolizing a readiness to follow Avram's lead, realizing that Hashem is the master of every single being. The problem was that the covenant was clearly a fake. They were only going through the motions. They missed the point and demonstrated that when they took their slaves back, they hadn't gotten the message. Right, Just like a slave that should go free and chooses not to, they were a master that should be sending their slave free but also chose not to. Thus, I think this concept of De Roar, which refers to that mandatory relinquishing of both oneself and others, for the purpose of reconnecting everyone in this world to Hashem is so crucial and essential to the concept of Ebed that perhaps the Navi here needed to highlight its importance in its warning to the people. Right? Because as was mentioned earlier, the Navi does not utilize the typical measure-for-measure for measure format and say that those who insisted on subjugating would be subjugated. In the Navi's presentation here in our Haftarah, there will necessarily be De Roar. There will be freedom for everyone without exception. And that means that, yes, if you're a slave, then you have to experience De Roar. You cannot stay any longer. And if you are a master of a slave, if you're a slave owner, then at that time, when the time is up, you will also experience a Roar or else. Or you will let go of your slave. You will be free of your own bondage which is disabling you from letting go of the other person, of letting go of your evid, you are going to be freed from that. You are going to be liberated from your grasp, from your need to seize on others and to prey on others. You are going to be released from that. Says the Navi, right? Because if not that, right? those who refuse to recognize God's soul mastery and instead choose to play the role of God themselves and to try to be masters over free men, so they themselves will be relinquished from God's care, where they will be free, as it were, prone to the sword, plague, and famine. So quite clearly, the Evidivy represents this constant struggle between service to Hashem and service to other forces, whether those forces are other fellow men or even ourselves, and our need to take from others, or to take on others as their masters, uh, to to subjugate others. But again, at the end of the day, there will be an unavoidable derur, there will be a relinquishing. If we are suffering, we will be let go from the bonds of this world. If we are on top, we will have to step aside and let go of the luxuries of this world, Or we'll face unpleasant consequences, as bitter as that sounds. The question for us is if we understand what it means to truly be an ivory. Do we know how to be devoted to Hashem above all else? Or do we just go through the motions with God while our true devotion lies somewhere else? Do we have dual loyalties? Are we still serving our own little pagan idols, even if that idol is ourself? Are we going to be stubborn and try to be our own masters of this world refusing to let go at Hashem's whim? And if so, we're no different than the Avadim who pathetically remain dependent on their bondage and exile. We're just being slaves to ourselves. Both an evad who doesn't want to go free and a master who doesn't want to let go are missing the point of the exodus, and both are failing to actualize the goal of an Ivri, which is to realize, you know what, we don't just go with the flow. We don't just go with what we're used to if we lived a life as a master, to say, oh, yeah, you know, I've, uh, I'm, I'm kind of used to having an Evid and this is what culturally is appropriate right now. Or as an Evid to say that this is what I'm used to and what's most comfortable for me is to remain a slave. We say no, even then, even if you love your Golos. Now, to cite one final occurrence of this term, Ivri. So, Yona. Hanavi Yona ben Amitai, he declares it perfectly before the pagan sailors in what has become a famous song now uh, by Evid, uh, by uh, by uh, Benny Friedman you know, and Mayor Kay. Right, I'm an Ivri. I'm a Jew, I'm a Hebrew. I guess is the proper proper translation. I'm an Ivri. and Hashem, the God of the heavens, is the one that I fear. And it's really that simple. We are not servants to anyone else, nor are we masters, even if we think we are. If we are truly serious and ready to re-enter Avraham's bris with Hashem when we accept the Torah, we will actualize what it means to be Ivrim, and will merit the truest sense of freedom, which is a humble but pleasurable and unhindered path to Avodah Hashem. So we shall be Zoha to acknowledge Hashem's sole mastery of this world, both freeing and submitting ourselves to Hashem's service, and Hashem will grant us that true sense of liberty and freedom and justice for all, of course. But most importantly, um that that, that true redemption, that true gu'ud in the days of Mashiach and Stay tuned for Half Torah for Parshash Shkulin, and have a wonderful rest of your week and a wonderful Shabbos Shkalin. Thank you for joining us here at the database.